I want to speak to you today from the topic when God's acceptable year is unacceptable. What happened that day at Nazareth? Everything had gotten off to such a beautiful start. Great crowds had assembled. Expectations were high. Excitement filled the air. And Jesus on that day lived up to his advance billing for the word was being noised about that this Jesus is a speaker indeed and mighty things happen where he goes. People were expecting that this would be the most exciting event that had happened in Nazareth for many years. Well, he came in. And as had been expected, with this hometown boy coming back, it was clear that he would be given the opportunity to read at least one of the lessons. Some elder perhaps had read from the Torah portion, but when it came down to the reading from the prophets, he was given the scroll. He opened the scroll and read impressively that passage from Isaiah 61. And when he had finished reading in the characteristic manner, he sat down to begin to explain to the people who were there what the text had meant which he had just completed reading. And we unfortunately do not have the full text. We do not even have the order of worship of that day. But Luke reports almost as if this happened to be the proposition sentence of his sermon. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I tell you things were off to a beautiful start. It was clearly going to be a wonderful day that the people would talk about all Saturday evening about what happened at the synagogue with that young prophet, that young aspiring rabbi Jesus. But Luke says, even before the service was over, all the people in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They rose up, put Jesus out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built that they could throw him down headlong. Now I ask you again, what happened that day in Nazareth? What on earth was so disturbing that it could transform the fine congregation of respectable citizens of Nazareth into a murderous lynch party. What happened? What do you think happened? 
Now, as I've said, we don't have the order of worship and we do not have the full manuscript. So we'll just have to work with what Luke has given us in this fourth chapter. Let's look at that story one more time. Let's see what happened, and especially now, those of you who worship regularly in congregations, it may be important to know the kinds of things that might stir up a congregation. You may go to church one day and before it's all over, found yourself in the midst of an angry, shouting, murderous mob. So you may wish to follow this to see what on, what on earth happened here that day. Well, maybe it was the portion that Jesus had read. You are familiar with that extract from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Could that text stir them up and make them angry? After all, this was a special text that spoke of the days to come when the oppression that they knew would be overcome by one whom the Lord would send to usher in a new day of liberty, a time of deliverance. This was a favorite text. They, they enjoyed listening to the fact that although they were now under the domination of the Roman government, that the time would come when one would be available to help set them free. Surely this was not what upset them. As one reads the text, one gets the impression that this was fairly well accepted. In fact, when Jesus had finished reading this passage from Isaiah 61 and closed the book and sat down and started talking, they were still looking at him, eyes fixed on him. And then he said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And from what Luke was able to pick up from those who had been there, the immediate reaction of the reading of this beautiful text was that all the people spoke well of him. Though after the comma it is not exactly clear what is meant when it said, and they wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. But he had done well so far. Everything was going fine. But then something happened. What seemed like general approval began to be less unanimous. You know, like a diet drink that tastes all right at first, but Later on, you begin to pick up an unpleasant aftertaste. I think maybe something like that happened in the moments after Jesus finished saying what he had to say. The smiles relaxed and um, uncertainty reflected in the brow glances to the side to see what others were thinking started to take place. 
And although we do not have a record of what they were thinking or even saying, could it have been that they started asking? Sounded pretty good. A good text he reads well. His speech teacher at the seminary he had gone to had done a good job with him, but they began to wonder, was he just reading this text or was he trying to start an uprising? Does he intend to start a movement to set free those who are oppressed? Is he going to do that himself? Is he asking us to, to get involved in that? And furthermore, does he claim some special anointing for himself like the prophets in the days when there was prophetic inspiration around? Isn't he violating the rule even of naming himself a prophet? Is that what he's trying to do? He's lost his humility, obviously. And furthermore, did you hear him talking about God's acceptable year and saying that this is fulfilled today? How does he think he knows what God's acceptable year is? And furthermore, what evidence does he intend to offer that he can verify his claims of knowing what God wants to do? Huh. A mighty ambitious agenda this young upstart has taken on for himself. Who does he think he is anyway? It was as if some of these thoughts must have been discerned by Jesus because somebody else after somebody says who does he think he is anyway had said and yeah isn't he just Joseph's boy? Whatever they were thinking or whatever they were revealing on their faces, Jesus discerned their spirit. And he answered them quickly. He felt like they were somehow censoring his words. It was as if they were saying to him, listen, if you are who you say you are, you had better show us something. And it struck Jesus as if I've heard words like that somewhere before. If you are, then do this. So he was already kind of sensitive. And so he, he gave them a quick answer. He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. The kind of stuff we heard you were doing over in Capernaum, you'd better do that here if you expect us to take you serious with this rather ambitious agenda that you've laid out. Jesus actually interpreted their minds. He discerned their spirits. And let me ask you this. How do you think the elders of the community felt about that. Most of us don't like folks trying to read our minds. 
My attitude is, don't you tell me what I'm thinking. Let me tell you what I'm thinking. But here, Jesus, some of them probably then started to feel like, oh, he's already given us the indication that he thinks he can discern the mind of God and suggest what God's acceptable year is. Now he turns and he's going to read our minds too and tell us what we're thinking about. How rude of him. The mood began to change that morning. They had tried to hear him and to receive him in a positive light. Old people understand how young people can be a little bit exalted in their zeal to be about ministry. They were prepared to go along with his youthful enthusiasm and, and to sort of understand that better wisdom will come with age. But now, because he has become aggressive, because he has apparently taken the offensive, they will let him know that we are not blind to what is going on here. And so they retroactively exegeted the passage behind him. Somebody who was good in Bible study said actually he did not read the first text right. He mixed in with Isaiah 61 something from Isaiah 58 as if to somehow reinforce the notion that he's going to set the captives free. In fact, 58 says, let the oppressed go free. Now he's talking about setting them free. And furthermore, he left out something even from the Isaiah 61 passage. We know the verses very well. He left out the part about announcing the day of vengeance. Whatever seminary he has been to has probably softened him, has given him a stronger identification with our enemies than he has with us. For doesn't he know that the day to come will be characterized by vengeance against those doggish Gentiles? And he has left that part out. Is he a sympathizer with our enemies? Has he lost primary devotion to his own people, they would set him straight. If he wanted to play hardball, they could play hardball right back with him. Now, brothers and sisters, you know that I'm a homiletics professor and that I teach preaching. And do not think it arrogant of me or that I am suggesting that if I had been there on that occasion when Jesus was preaching his first sermon, if I had been closer to him, as I watched the change of the mood in that congregation, and as I saw the antipathy and even the hostility beginning to surface, had I been there, Will, I would have just whispered to him the advice that I used to hear in North Carolina just after I had graduated from seminary. And the old folks used to say to me, now, son, you need to know when to let well enough do. I, I would have whispered to Jesus, Jesus, it's, it's uh, all right. Maybe, maybe you have um, said enough now. N not trying to tell you what to say, but these people, these people can only take so much. Um, but Jesus did not hear me. Even if I had been there, he would not have heard me. Because you know what he did from that moment? Now listen, the people are already beginning to look very stern-faced. They are already 
beginning to clench their teeth, I already see hands that were extended to him beginning to, to close. But do you know what he did? He made bad matters worse by saying to them, not only did he say to them what they were thinking, but he had scanned their hearts and discerned the content thereof and said to them, no prophet is acceptable in his own country. Do you know what that means he is saying to them? He is saying that I have come to announce the agenda of God, but I do not believe that you are capable of responding positively to the will of God because your spirit is at enmity with what the spirit of God is about. Do you hear him telling these people in their own church that they are organized in a way that is in opposition to what God's agenda is for this year? And as if that wasn't enough to tell them that they are the enemies of God. He turns around and says, as a matter of fact, this isn't completely new. He says to them, in those days when there was a great famine in our land, don't you remember that Elijah while everybody else was trying to find something to eat, Elijah was not sent to any of our people, but was sent to a widow woman of Zarephath. None of us received that extraordinary miracle of the extension of the oil in the cruise and the meal in the vessel. None of us, only them. Now they know he is out of sync with the spirit of the community. And as if that were not enough, he goes on and says that in the time of Elisha, the one that followed Elijah, there were many lepers in Israel. And guess what? The Lord did not heal any of the lepers in Israel, but only Naaman, a Syrian, a foreigner. Now, when Jesus had finished that, Luke says, everybody in the synagogue, sensing the dynamics there, without calling a meeting, without convening the board of directors, without, without trying to figure out what the best way to deal with this homeboy who has turned sour in their very midst, that they all rose up and grabbed him and cast him out of the synagogue. And not only that, but followed him, everyone, behind him to the edge of the city and led him to the hill on which the city was built in order that they might cast him down headlong. I suspect that's what happens when God's acceptable year is unacceptable to the people. 
Well, I do not know what your reaction is against these people at Nazareth. I hope you are not too harsh on them. In fact, let me ask you, have you ever been provoked enough, any of you, by anything which, which stirred up wrath inside you and deep inside impulses of a murderous sort just begged for opportunity to be released? Any of you all ever been that mad? Any of you ever been mad enough that if something had not happened, you 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 would have joined the crowd that that wanted to do somebody in any of you all right i guess i do not expect you to identify yourselves personally so may i tell you yes i i have i have been that mad Yes, I have been that angry, and I do not say this to congratulate myself, especially with children here. I do not want to give them the impression that violence is ever a solution to the problem. I do not, so children understand that this is a bad example from a preacher, that when I was a kid, my sister was teasing me. about who I was and, and, and who she thought I was going to become and, and what kind of personality she thought I had and how unacceptable the kind of person I was becoming seemed to her. And without thinking about it, I picked up a glass and threw it and thanked God that, that the Lord helped her to put her hand against her face lest I would go through life with the burden of having blinded my own sister. Children, sometime when your identity is under attack, when who you know yourself to be, your sense of your own worth is somehow devalued by somebody else's negative judgment, sometimes impulses deep inside can almost get the best of you. Oh, it happens again. Since I've been a minister, and I tried my best to promote the values that I knew to be godly values, and then to have people where I'm trying to live out my vocation turn against me, fight my program, stop my progress in the work I'm trying to do for the Lord. Sometimes, had people to try to mess over the security I had. You know, basic needs that are being met, my, my job, my salary, my income, the things I possess. And then people come around and, and start pulling the rug out from under how I sustain myself, messing up my job, trying to mess around with my salary, trying to keep me from getting a raise, trying to mess up the advantage I've got, trying to lay on me a burden that's going to undermine my assets. You, I ask you again, look, don't let me be up here by myself. Am I the only one that ever has gotten mad enough to kind of want to want to do something
did it happen that day at Nazareth? It happens, it happens frequently when, when God's acceptable year seems totally unacceptable in relationship to what the human agenda seems to be. Oh, may I, may I leave Nazareth behind and really come on to the day? May I lift up one issue that I thought I would mention to concretize how the real issue for us in congregations is to try to figure out whether if God made clear what God's agenda is for this year, 1985, would we find God's agenda acceptable to our own personal arrangements or would we Christian people, church-going folks, decent citizens of our community, would we find God's agenda unacceptable? God's acceptable year unacceptable? Let me give you one modern example. The year 1985 follows the year of Desmond Tutu's receiving the Nobel Prize for his role in the liberation struggle in South Africa. And Desmond now, having received the award, looks to this year, 1985, and he says that if significant breakthroughs are not made in the liberation struggle in South Africa that blood white and black blood or there's only red blood from black and white people and colored and Indians that blood will flow in the streets of Pretoria Cape Town and Johannesburg and Port Elizabeth and he has cried out and said he believes that this year that the people who believe in peace must mobilize all the strength they can get because if it doesn't happen with the rising agitation among people who have been silent and who have been yielding to oppression for years that something is rising up there and will they make South Africa a, a kind of football field on which Russia and the United States will begin to play new and strange games? Or will the extraordinary military might of Af South Africa be used to exterminate the masses of the black people who are now aspiring for their liberty? And Desmond says, this is the year that if it doesn't happen this year, you and I will live to lament our absence of support for the transformative possibilities in that area. And I hear him loud and clear. And I read the newspapers. And I've been to South Africa. And from what I can see and from what I can hear, it looks to me like there's likely to be bloodshed anyway. But that if we do not reduce the prospect of violence as the primary means of transformation in that society, that I will feel just like those of you who could have done something when Hitler was arranging the extermination of the Jews. And now, in retrospect, when I said if I had been alive back there, I would have found something to do. 
That's what I've said for many years. Now here I'm faced with the situation where the extermination of millions of black people and possibly the extermination of millions of white people can take place right there in that South African area. And Desmond says, this is the acceptable year of the Lord for the liberation of those who are oppressed in that land both blacks and whites and coloreds and Indians, for the whole land slumbers under a deep depression and oppression. Now let me ask you this. How do you think the 80% the of the black folks feel about that news Maybe. But more than that, the less than 20% of the white people in that land. Do you think that God's acceptable year for liberation of the oppressed in South Africa is likely to find them willing and ready? You think about that. Don't lay it all on the Nazareth people. What do you think about the Africana? Do you know what it would be like to give freedom to 80% of the population you have oppressed for years and years and hundreds of years? Do you know what it is like to think about their identity as the ones God sent to cultivate that land and to lift up the benighted black people, their identity under attack, their vocation to be a covenant people of God to prove that no enemy is too strong, but that with the power of God they can turn back all their oppressors. And then to be told that they are enemies of God, that the prophet Desmond can't be accepted because he's talking talk, which will reduce their living standard, which will require an extensive giving of freedom to people who've been so oppressed that what will they do if they get freedom? Oh, brothers and sisters, how do you think the Africana would feel if Jesus came walking through in their assembly saying, this year is the year? But having taken you to Nazareth and now to South Africa, I have to come back to Duke Chapel because after all, we're the ones that are here. How do you feel? What is your response? to Desmond's cry that this is the year, that we must do everything that is possible to be done to reduce the power of that regime to continue its madless plunge into the abyss of inhumanity. How do you feel? For example, what are you prepared to do? What churns deep in you? If you were told and it was convincing to you that every believing Christian, wherever you are, you must now disengage from the benefits you derive from our relationship to South Africa, what would you do? Would you support divestment in the institutions from which you derive your security, even if the portfolio would be reduced thereby?
Are you prepared to give up your security that the South African government provides where the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean comes together down by the Cape of Good Hope? Are you willing to give up your security? Are you willing to give up your money? Are you willing to give up your pride? Are you willing to give up your sense of identification with that regime? What would you do if Jesus came walking through and said, brothers and sisters, hear the cry. The time is ticking out. What will you do? Brothers and sisters, it is my conviction. I do not know what you hear Jesus saying, but it seems I hear him in my heart saying, Jim, anything that you can do to help your government and businesses with which you have influences to disengage from that system, any benefits you derive from it, you must be willing to give up even if it costs your standard of living, even if it costs the loss of your credibility in the circles where you travel, you must come away from there and investment with that system because it is the acceptable year of the Lord that there must be freedom and liberty in that land? Well, strange things. When God's acceptable year is announced, something inside us often finds it unacceptable. And so what Christians have to decide is this. Suppose you had an impulse to protect your security, your identity, and your vacation over against the will of God. Suppose something in you wanted to protect where you are and what you have, though God is saying something else. Do you understand how it's hard to hang in there? That, 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 that you almost have to kill God or kill the godly influence or, or kill the godly impulse in order that your old way of life may prevail. You're in a situation that is not only conflictual, you've got a crisis. In fact, you may, insofar as you are a part of a culture, you may find yourself sucked up into a national mindset that, that, that resists the impulses of the spirit. And you need to make up your mind whether or not you're going to fight to kill God and the impulse of liberty or whether you will bring into check the very natural self-preservative motif that's alive in all of us. I think I'd better close. I do not know how you feel. You may wish to even identify me with the rabble-rousing Jesus. You may wonder where on earth did they get that wild man from New York City by way of North Carolina. You may say, well, let him hurry up and go on back and leave us where we are with our peace and tranquility. But if Luke 4 has managed to penetrate your ears and your hearts, you got something to decide. Whether to kill the impulse of freedom as revealed in Jesus the Christ, 
or whether to yield your own sense of a need for security and protection, whether to yield that into the hands of the Lord and say, Lord, if you make your agenda clear, you can count on me as a person who will serve your cause. I had a long list of things I was getting ready to recommend to you that you could do in relationship to the struggle in South Africa if you found yourself not willing to be a murderer of the dream of freedom. I could talk about promoting divestments as they are doing at Columbia now right up the street from me. That is something we need to look at again. It may be that that economic and political pressure may reduce the number of white and black deaths in that land. I was about to suggest that each one of us would begin to impact the political climate in which we live so that taking that on as a serious problem with which we can all gather and join, I was about to suggest that and I do suggest that. I will tell you what I have had to do. The Lord kept bothering me and I preached that maybe we have to give up the luxury of our rings, diamonds and gold rings. And I, I, I taught that and one woman brought her diamond ring insofar as diamonds and gold are associated with the beginning of the power and economic advance of Africans. And she gave me her diamond ring and then I was embarrassed so I had to take off my gold ring. And furthermore, maybe I must ask the church to stop blessing gold and diamond rings in weddings as a symbol of the unity that God gives as long as there is the brokenness and fragmentation in that land. Take it off. My wife didn't like that. She was wrathful when she discovered that I had placed my ring on an altar saying I will not wear that gold band again until there is substantial progress for liberty in that land. And some of us may have to decide that in so far as even our national security seems sustained by apartheid, that we would be willing to risk greater exposure to danger than to continue to be agents of evil against those people whose land has been invaded and so far cultivated. That constructive engagement is a phony way of talking about maintaining our vested interests at the expense of these people. Then I found out that the Lord wanted me not to lay too heavily on you what I have felt like doing, but to simply say this to you. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. If you go back home, yielding your life to the power of the Holy Spirit with the word that says, Lord, whatever your acceptable year is, fix me with your Spirit so that when you make clear what I can do, you will find me an agent of your will rather than one who murders the prospect of the freedom to which you call us. Pardon the length of my sermon, but not the passion of my spirit. Something has to be done. And if we don't do anything, we have already done something.